Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 164, and it addresses the NBC White Paper. This special was essentially designed by its creator, Walter Sheridan, to discredit Jim Garrison and his investigation and to do it on national television during prime time. For sure, there were many issues with Garrison and how he was proceeding. One of the things that I said when we began this journey, this wander about the Garrison investigation and the Clay Shaw trial was that it was a confusing tangle of facts and narratives that were not unlike the rest of the JFK assassination material. However, there was one common thread that had greater weight in this circumstance. The United States press and news media, or at least elements of it, had clearly been conscripted to assist the federal government in containing the damage and the fallout and to derail the Garrison investigation, if possible. You've heard some stunning examples of that in prior episodes already. This was a story that was getting worldwide attention, and there was a real fear within places like the CIA and other pockets of our national leadership that were deathly afraid that Garrison's efforts would produce something, something more tangible, something that would really uncover the truth about what had happened that day on November 22nd, and before and after. As you know, I rarely, if at all, do any original research. I have hundreds of books, hundreds of videos, and hundreds of articles, and there is so much available in general on the internet today that my role has been, from the very beginning, to be an editor of sorts, to read and sift through and make judgments about what seems to be corroborated, reasonable, and in the end, credible. All over the assassination materials, there are hot spots, so to speak, places where researchers who are supporters of the lone gunman theory clash in almost a militant way with conspiracy theorists. Similar to that culture clash are the supporters and the detractors of Jim Garrison. I've said this throughout this mini-series of episodes, but what makes this so complicated is that the contemporaneous historical record and the record that was subsequently embodied in the small handful of books that are considered to be the more definitive sources on this set of events are in and of themselves at philosophical odds as to some of the true facts. To be quite honest, I go into each reading understanding the general bias that the author has. That is, either a Jim Garrison supporter or a Jim Garrison detractor. And as a result of this, there is always an element of bias that you have to adjust for, at times rather judgmentally, to determine what you believe the truth may be. That, in and of itself, is subjective, I know. But it's also my goal as the creator of this podcast to apply my reasoning as as best I can so that the story being told is as true and as clear as it can be. 
The other day, someone asked me to give them an example of how simple facts are twisted to support a narrative and specifically how some of that occurred in the garrison circumstance. Well, pro-garrison writers and detractors of garrison both do it. So I want to say that right up front. And probably what I should do is give an example of both. But I'm not going to do that because I think the most egregious examples are actually sitting in the realm of the garrison detractors. Sadly, Patricia Lambert's book, False Witness, which is a relatively well-researched book and has many good details in it, offers some of the more poignant examples of where facts are simply twisted to meet the needs of the garrison detractors. Let me give you an example, and I'm now going to read directly from the book. She writes about David Ferry, and it goes like this. Although critical of President Kennedy's handling of the Bay of Pigs invasion, Ferry approved of Kennedy's civil rights and fiscal programs. He was anti-communist and anti-Castro, but the rumors of his participation in the Bay of Pigs invasion have never been proved. He claimed he had never been to Cuba and once remarked that Castro could be a friend of the United States. In 1961, he participated with anti-Castro Cuban leader Sergio Arcacha Smith in the so-called raid of an ammunition bunker in Homa, Louisiana. Since they had a key to the bunker and no report of theft was ever made by the company that owned it, this incident was more like a transfer. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to stop there because this is one of the most ridiculous rewrites of history in the story. It's a small item, but it really is ridiculous. And it's pretty indicative of many rewrites you can find if you look hard enough. And it's not done with truly factual lies either. That is the art of it. Let me say this about what you just heard. Testimony taken under oath by individuals who were part of the group that went to Homa to participate in the heist show that clearly it was a heist and not a transfer. She said that they had a key to open the door. A key? Well, let me tell you there's testimony showing that there was a bolt cutter used to cut the lock. So if they had a key, why didn't they use it? And as for the comment that the company didn't report the theft, well, it was Schlumberger, and they were deeply involved in assisting in these kinds of clandestine matters. Do you think this kind of transaction would be, quote, reported to the authorities? How naive. Okay, this is, I think, a good example of a very blatant rewrite of an event that was designed to soften facts about David Ferry. And it was one of the central points surrounding evidence that Ferry was deeply involved in anti-Castro activities. As for him, making a statement that he had never been to Cuba? (laughs) Well, there is reasonable evidence anyway that he was likely involved in firebombing areas of Cuba and he helped drop leaflets over Cuba. When he said he had never been to Cuba, he was simply lying. And Lambert should have known that. But she had a bias, and she chose to use his words, likely untrue words, to support that bias when the facts are likely otherwise. Almost assuredly, Ferry flew missions to Cuba. Maybe you can say he'd never been to Cuba because maybe his foot had never set foot on Cuban soil. 
I don't know. But that's really splitting hairs, isn't it? Saying that there is no evidence that he participated in the actual Bay of Pigs is another tried and true technique to dispel the overall comments surrounding his involvement in the anti-Castro efforts of the time. Whether he participated in the Bay of Pigs or not is not a defining fact here. It becomes, in fact, a red herring in this conversation. Certainly one can make an argument that had he participated in it, he might have had more of an emotional connection to the failure, and he may have placed more of the blame then on Kennedy. No doubt that would likely be true. Yet, he may still have had many comrades who died there, which would have deepened the attachment regardless. In full disclosure, that is total speculation on my part. Chances are, though, he may very well have had those connections without having fought in the battle himself. He was clearly involved in training troops, and whether he had involvement from a time perspective that would have coincided with the Bay of Pigs invasion, well, maybe that could be debated. But again, it's somewhat irrelevant because he had definite involvement in anti-Castro training of troops in the New Orleans area. The reason I point all of this out, this example, is that the entire miniseries has become one hell of a slog. Through all kinds of subtle rewrites designed by the original authors to support their own objectives and narratives. Even though I'm being critical of Patricia Lambert at this moment, you still have to pay your respects to this author, who did an exceptional job in bringing out the basic core of the facts, just like Joan Mellon did in her book and William Davies. But people see what they want to see, and they squint or close their eyes when things contrary come into view. It really makes it tough for me in presenting information, and it makes it even tougher for you as a juror who is one more step removed from the truth. Always remember that I wasn't there. Patricia Lambert wasn't there. Joan Mellon wasn't there. (laughs) Well, to be honest, Joan Mellon did spend time with Garrison, and so she may perhaps be closer than any of those examples to the truth. But my point is, People who write about things do their best to recreate the reality of the moment, and they do it in the confines of their own biases. Mellon did perhaps the most exhaustive job of tracking down witnesses and reviewing documents, and honestly, her work, in my opinion, is really exceptional. It's a pro-Garrison theme for sure, and so I get that. And I get that there is a bias there but that doesn't detract from it still being amazing work. We have spent a few months wandering around in this area so far, and I've deepened my own understanding once again about the topic beyond what I had originally learned when I first read all of these books and read about the trial originally. That's a good thing. And I've come away with something I've already said before, but I'll say it again. I actually do think that Garrison was brilliant. And I do think that he had a perception about things that was uncanny. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that the Garrison investigation was a classic case of where hunch and presumption got way ahead of the evidence. And Garrison was right on when he made that prediction publicly right after the secrecy of the investigation was broken in early 1967 by the New Orleans press. He predicted 
that the world's attention now thrust upon them would also bring a force of power that acted like gravity against the investigation, a force so powerful that it could not be overcome. (laughs) At least not, and I quote Jim Garrison himself, at least not by a chicken shit DA from Orleans Parish, Louisiana. Still, no matter what, fraught with so many errors and a cloak of tragedy that affected many, it is still the only time in the history of our country that the assassination of the president was officially investigated by a law enforcement authority that was out of the purview of the federal government. We have materials and research and sworn testimony and articles that never would have appeared in the light of day for history's sake had it not been for this investigation. I'll pause here and use an expression that my dad liked to invoke, and it was this. He would say, that was a courageous thing, and I don't care what you say. The NBC white paper aired on June 19, 1967, and it was just under an hour, and it focused on a wide variety of topics, all of which were designed to discredit the investigation by Garrison. Some of the notable issues addressed by the NBC program included, first, the intimidation of witnesses and inappropriate investigative techniques applied on witnesses by Garrison and his staff. They would present contrary evidence in an attempt to shred Perry Russo's testimony and to dismantle the idea that the party at Ferry's apartment ever took place, the one where the assassination plot was supposedly discussed. They would attempt a complete shredding of the idea that it was Lee Harvey Oswald that was identified in Ferry's apartment. There was much more, and you'll hear it firsthand when you listen to the taping. And that's coming in just a minute. In doing all this work, perhaps one of NBC's worst blunders related to one terribly bad and perhaps outright lie related to a completely false set of facts presented about Clay Bear Trand. NBC represented that they knew who the real Clay Bertrand was, and it was not Shaw. But they were not going to reveal who it was. Rather, they would simply give the name to the federal authorities. Later, it would be revealed that the person they found in the French Quarter was Eugene Davis. And Eugene Davis was not Clay Bertrand. And he would testify under oath that he had never gone by that name. Of course, we all know now that Clay Bertrand was Clay Shaw. But out of all the information presented by NBC, this was but one more example of a very reckless comment and conclusion that proved to be false. And we'll go one step further. They even allowed Clay Shaw the opportunity to appear and to perjure himself on national television and say he was not Bertrand. Of course, this white paper was the brainchild of Walter Sheridan, as I mentioned earlier, who by this time was working for NBC and certainly cooperating closely with the CIA. And in later years, the record clearly shows this. Bill Gurvich, still Jim Garrison's main investigator at that moment, but not for long. And by the way, he had already become a real non-believer and truly a turncoat of sorts inside the Garrison investigation. Well, he was in New York, and he happened to receive a special screening from NBC of the White Paper. 
you would watch the screening at 2 a.m. on the day that the white paper would appear on national television. And yet he wouldn't call Garrison himself to tell him that until later that afternoon, just hours before it would be aired. In some ways, thank goodness it was 1967. The Federal Communications Commission, or FCC's Fairness Doctrine, applied back then. And after appealing to the FCC, after the airing of the original NBC show, Garrison was granted prime time on an ensuing Saturday night to make his rebuttal. Although he got slightly less than 30 minutes of rebuttal time, and he represented afterward that the shorter time frame impacted his approach, at the end of the day, he still made certain compelling arguments. We'll hear his rebuttal in the next episode, episode 165. And what is so extraordinary about the original NBC white paper and then a response from Garrison is that as an operative policy of the FCC, the fairness doctrine no longer exists in the world of news that we live in today. Garrison's extraordinary opportunity to respond on NBC and on national television without any editing or interference by NBC and coming after petitioning the FCC, well, it would essentially no longer be possible in today's environment. Like most things in life, what is in this NBC program is not totally false or totally true. In fact, there are many basic facts that are true and well done. And the ones that are true are unfortunately, mostly damaging to Garrison, (laughs) as NBC intended. But on the other hand, you don't have to look very far to find assertions contained in the program that are quite false and tragically damaging to the case. But perhaps more importantly is how all of this material was so artfully weaved together in an attempt to torpedo the case against Shaw and to torpedo the credibility of Garrison and his staff. And it was done in a way that so artfully maintains the highest of credibility for NBC as an investigative reporting organization. Much of the viewing audience must have sat there and said, oh my God, what is going on down there in New Orleans? The law enforcement mechanism is crooked too down there, isn't it? And I can imagine the ensuing dinner table talk where someone says that Garrison's efforts seem to be about a political climb or desire for national exposure, moves being engineered by Garrison himself. (laughs) Was NBC brilliant in their positioning of this? I think the answer to that is yes. But that doesn't make its program all true or all right. One thing is for sure, in the modern era that we live in today, where people shout the news and make the incendiary remarks as a matter of journalistic protocol, this 1960s era investigative program will appear professional, tame, and civil. It was just a different era and time. And our culture was simply different then. This approach was brilliantly designed to bring credibility to its narrative in the eyes of the American people. NBC said it had no right to prejudge Garrison's case, (laughs) but clearly that is exactly what they were doing. Oh, let me correct that a bit. They were trying to bury the case, not prejudge it. 
It's not hard to see that NBC enjoyed acting as an advance guard for the Shaw legal team, interrogating these witnesses as if they themselves were the Shaw legal defense team. You've heard some of these facts already, and in a moment, you'll hear them again in the context of this storytelling. Keep in mind when listening that this is audio from an NBC television program, so I occasionally have to intercede and identify the witness being interviewed. Otherwise, you might not recognize the voice that is speaking. Keep in mind, I don't do that for every witness. Unfortunately, the videotape that we are reviewing is not well marked for every witness. And where I am unsure who is talking, I have not provided that information. And finally, let's not forget that Garrison hauled a whole bunch of these witnesses into the grand jury room after they appeared on the NBC special. Because in a grand jury environment, when you testify, you are sworn in under oath. And wouldn't you know it, many of them refused to testify and stood behind their Fifth Amendment rights so as not to perjure or incriminate themselves. (laughs) when asked to repeat many of those same claims under oath. Garrison wasn't messing around. He used the perjury charge like an ancient warrior uses his sword in a hand-to-hand combat battle. And those witnesses knew it. I'm not going to try and say anything in advance about the testimony that is contained in the white paper. I think it best for you to listen to it first, and then to Garrison's rebuttal. And then for good measure, we'll top it off with some of their grand jury testimony to try and see who is telling the truth here and what either party may or may not have been doing to induce those witnesses to say something that wasn't true. The witnesses that appeared on the NBC white paper, and there were many of them, were essentially all damaging to Garrison and his staff's reputation, even though many of them were criminals themselves. That shouldn't be a surprise to you, knowing what the objective of the show was. I'm not going to spend much time talking about the detail of the content before you see the episode, as I don't want to bias too much the specifics here. Watch it, and let's see what you think. Then, we're going to talk about it after, and as part of Garrison's response episode in 165. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 164 of JFK. The Enduring Secret. The following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. Many Americans doubt the findings of the Warren Commission. Only one American has had and used legal powers to investigate those findings. That one is Jim Garrison, the District Attorney of New Orleans. His investigation has made headlines for four months. This is an examination of that investigation. The JFK Conspiracy, the case of Jim Garrison, reported by Frank McGee. Four months ago, Jim Garrison said he had positively solved the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. He said a man named David Ferry was under surveillance. 
When Ferry died suddenly, he called him one of history's most important figures. On March 1st, he arrested a New Orleans businessman named Clay Shaw and charged him with participation in the conspiracy. He said there would be more arrests, a considerable number of them. He said the key to the whole case is through the looking glass. Black is white. White is black. We have no right to prejudge Jim Garrison's case. We can legitimately examine his record up to now. Our starting point is the pretrial hearing of Clay Shaw. Garrison had two key witnesses. The first was a 26-year-old insurance salesman named Perry Raymond Russo. Russo testified that in September 1963, he'd gone to a party in David Ferry's apartment. Among the guests were several Cubans, Ferry's bearded roommate, and a man named Clay Bertrand. Later, when the other guest had left, he found himself alone with Ferry, the roommate whom he identified as Lee Harvey Oswald and Bertrand. Well, despite his presence, they began to discuss openly and in detail a plan to assassinate President Kennedy. Russo was asked if Bertrand was in the courtroom. He said yes. He was asked to point out Bertrand. He got up from the witness chair, walked over to the defense table, and held his hand over the head of Clay Shaw. Garrison's second key witness was Vernon Bundy, a 29-year-old narcotics addict. Mainly on the testimony of Russo and Bundy, a three-judge panel decided that there was sufficient evidence to establish probable cause that a crime had been committed. In answer to criticism of his witnesses, Garrison pointed out that it was hard to find bank presidents at the scene of this conspiracy. He defended Vernon Bundy. The question is, is he telling the truth or not? There are many attorneys who are brilliant liars, and there are dope addicts who have never learned to lie. And that's the case here. The question is, was he telling the truth? And the answer is obviously. Now, Vernon Bundy has been a narcotics addict since he was 13. He has a police record. On March 4th, 1967, according to Garrison, Bundy turned himself in to New Orleans Parish Prison because he was back on the habit. Bundy says he was first interviewed by Garrison's men the day before he testified. Two fellow prisoners told NBC News Bundy had indicated to them that his testimony, that he had seen Shaw and Oswald together, was not true. John Kanzler, known as John the Baptist, What's your profession, Mr. Kanzler? What was my profession? Yes. I was a burglar. And you were in the parish prison on this burglary, right? Right. And did you meet a man named Vernon Bundy there? Found out later his name was Vernon Bundy. See, I didn't know what his name was until I read the paper. After this, uh, I only knew him by legs. Now, what did Legs tell you up there? Did you say, I wonder whether I should say I saw him on the Esplanade, I saw him on the lakefront. I said, man, I said, it's getting bad. You start talking to yourself, too. You know, you know, like some of these guys will stir above, you know. He said, no, man. He said, I'm talking about this cat Shaw. I said, what you talking about, man? He said, man, I, I don't know whether it's best for me to say that I saw him on Esplanade Street. On the lakefront. Did Bundy indicate to you whether the story that he was going to tell in court was true? Did he? How could he indicate when he would ask me, should he say this or should he say that? If he, if it was the truth, he would know what to say. 
It was obvious from what he told you that he was going to tell a lie then? He told a lie. Did he tell well, you it was a lie? Sure, I asked him, I said, man, is this the truth? He said, no. He said, no, it's not the truth. Also in parish prison at the time Bundy testified was Miguel Torres, serving a nine-year sentence for burglary. He met Bundy in a prison hospital. What did he tell you about his testimony that day? He said, well, uh, that's the only way that uh, I can get cut loose. I asked him how much time did he owe uh, the state. He said he owed the state five years. He was out on five-year probation. And uh, then I said, well, that's a hell of a thing you're doing in order to... Uh, to do what you want to do. He says, well, uh, the reason I'm doing this is because it's the only way that I can uh, get cut loose. In other words, he said to you, in effect, that he was testifying as he was in the Shaw hearing in order to uh, prevent his probation from being revoked. Is right. that right? From being violated, yes. Did you get the impression that he knew that his testimony in the hearing had been false? Well, just exactly how I said it. He said, the reason I'm doing this is because that's the only way I can get cut loose. And the impression I got was that, that uh, it was out front lie. Jim Garrison told a BBC reporter he uses what he calls objectifying tests to make sure his witnesses are telling the truth. Now, one such test is a polygraph, the lie detector. On the morning he testified, Vernon Bundy was given a lie detector test. NBC News has learned that the results of the test indicated that Bundy was lying. Assistant District Attorney Charles Ward was informed of this, and Ward went to Garrison. He told Garrison that in view of the outcome of the lie detector test, the indication that Bundy was lying, Bundy should not be allowed to testify. Despite this, Bundy was put on the witness stand by Garrison. He testified against Shaw. Partly as a result of that testimony, Shaw was held for trial. More important than Bundy was Perry Russo. He was, in fact, vital to Garrison's case. He linked Shaw, Ferry, and Oswald. He involved them in the conspiracy to kill John F. Kennedy. Well, how did he come into the case? By his own account, he wrote a letter to Jim Garrison saying he had some information about David Ferry's connection with the assassination of President Kennedy. Now, this was on February 22nd, 1967. That same week, he was interviewed by a reporter from the NBC affiliate in Baton Rouge. What, uh, what kind of remarks did David Ferry will make about uh, the assassination to you? Toward the end of September and October, I saw him on several occasions, and he brought out the fact in passing remark, whether or not it had any <clears throat> undue meaning or anything else, I don't know. And I'm not trying to add words to his meaning, but he said that we will get him referring to the president because we want elaborate discussions concerning the president. He said, we will get the president, referring to Kennedy. In his first public interview, Russo mentioned no party at Ferry's apartment, no assassination plot, no Clay Shaw or Clay Bertrand. Next, he talked to a reporter from WDSU-TV. Do it all with the assassination in any way? Well, uh... Of that I don't know, and I, you know, it'd be just speculative speculation. Did he ever mention Lee Harvey Oswald's name? No. No conversation at all about. No, I, I had never heard of Oswald until uh, the television assassination. Uh, Two weeks later, he would testify at the hearings. He would positively identify Lee Oswald and Clay Shaw. He would describe in detail the party at which they were present. He would tell about a plot to kill the president. Well, what had happened? 
We know that Russo was visited in Baton Rouge by one of Garrison's assistants, Andrew Chambre. We know that he spent time on at least three other occasions with a man from Garrison's office, and we now know some additional facts. Jim Phelan covered the conspiracy story for the Saturday Evening Post. Nine days before the hearing, he met Jim Garrison in Las Vegas. He spent ten hours with Garrison discussing the case. Did he give you any documents to read in connection with this? Yes, he uh, gave me two documents. One of them was a uh, long memorandum written by uh, Mr. Garrison's uh, first, uh, his first assistant, uh, District Attorney, uh, Andrew Chambray, which uh, recounted a interview that he had had with Perry Russo in Baton Rouge. Uh, this was the first interview that anyone uh, from the DA's office had had with Perry Russo. And what was the second document? The second document was a uh, hypnotic interrogation of um, Russo. I believe it was four days after the first interrogation. Did Russo tell the same story in both of these uh, documents? He did not. As a witness, Russo said he was at a party at David Ferry's apartment and present when Ferry, Clay Shaw, and Lee Harvey Oswald plotted to kill President Kennedy. Did he tell this story in his first interview? He said nothing whatever about a uh, party or a plot in the first interview. Was he able to identify Oswald? They made an identification after uh, they sketched a series of beards on the picture of Lee Oswald. They, I think they drew 18 or 20 of them before he finally came up with the identification. Was Russo shown a picture of Clay Shaw? Yes, he was. Did he identify the picture of a man he knew to be Shaw as Clay Bertrand? He did not. He simply said that he had seen the man. How many times did he? He said he'd seen him twice. And where had he seen him? He saw him once when uh, Kennedy was visiting uh, New Orleans to dedicate the Nashville Wharf, and the second time he said he saw this man in a car with Dave Ferry. Did he mention seeing him at a party in Ferry's apartment where people had plotted to kill Kennedy? He said nothing about it. In fact, he said specifically that he had seen him twice, and he said specifically the two times. When did Russo first describe the details he testified to as a witness at the pretrial hearing? Uh, he first uh, mentioned the plot and the party and the presence of uh, Shaw, Oswald, and Ferry, uh, in a deep hypnotic trance when he was, uh, he was hypnotized by uh, Dr. Ed Edmund Fatter. Did he remember Shaw and an assassination plot immediately under hypnosis? He did not. He volunteered uh, no information about uh, the party or the plot. When did he begin to remember? He began to remember when uh, Dr. Fatter asked him a uh, series of leading questions. Well, I would say it went beyond that. Uh, Dr. Fatter set the stage for him. He told him uh, uh, that he would be present in uh, Ferry's apartment and that Shaw and Oswald and Ferry would be there and that they would be discussing assassinating someone. And then Dr. Fatter says, now tell me about it. Am I correct in reading this from the record? Quote, Dr. Fatter saying, quote, any time you want to, you can permit yourself to become calm, cool, and collected. You will be amazed at how acute your memory will become in the next few weeks. That's correct. How did Russo appear when you saw him testify? He was a calm, cool, and collected.
why do you feel that you've had to use extraordinary methods like truth drugs and hypnotism to get these people to give their evidence? We decided to give him objectifying uh, machinery to make sure he was telling the truth. We gave him the truth serum in order to make sure. Now, it seems to me that uh, this is rather unusual, uh, a, a prosecution, a prosecuting office, which has a pretty good case, making its witness take objectifying tests to make sure they're telling the truth. We did it for this reason. We, did, uh, we used hypnosis for the same thing, just to make sure that he was telling the truth. Dr. J. Katz is associate professor of law and associate professor of clinical psychology at Yale. We showed him the stenographic transcripts of two of Dr. Fatter's hypnotic sessions with Perry Russo. Doctor, how reliable, in your view, are sodium pentothal and hypnotism as means of reaching the truth? There's a very widespread belief that under hypnosis and under sodium amytal, subject will tell the objective truth. But under hypnosis, at least a great many subjects may have greater difficulty to differentiate, differentiate between fact and fantasy. Dr. Katz, does it appear to you that some of the questions by the interviewer uh, questioning Perry Russo suggest the answers? I wondered about this, and I was very much struck that uh, on many occasions, the hypnotist introduced very leading questions. This was most striking, if I just can use one example, when he directly asked him, or in fact, uh, not even asked him, but told him to tell him about the uh, conversation that took place with respect to an assassination plot. Would you comment on the manner in which the interviews with Perry Russo were conducted? Made it more rather than less difficult to separate fact from fantasy? Uh, yes, he made no attempt, as far as I can see, to press further and at least attempt to find out uh, what was fantasy and what was reality. Then you don't feel that there was sufficient questioning to find out whether Rousseau was in fact telling the truth or was distorting the truth. This is quite correct. This is always very, very difficult, but uh, one at least can make an attempt, and this attempt was not made in this case. Did you ever talk to Garrison about the discrepancies in his reports? Well, after the uh, hearing in which Mr. Shaw was held at trial, I called Garrison, and I said, uh, uh, Jim, there's something bothers me uh, deeply. Uh, so he said, well, I'll get uh, Chambray out here. And he called him right away on the phone, and he uh, had him come out to his uh, home. He also had his chief investigator, William Gerbich. And the four of us uh, sat there in garrison study, and I uh, put this to Chambray. I said, there's nothing in your original interrogation about, one, um, uh, Shaw knowing... Oswald, Shaw knowing Prairie, about the man you identified as having seen, uh, about knowing him as, uh, as Bertrand, or about a party at the Ferry's apartment in which they discussed the assassination. In fact, all of the things that were so damaging to Shaw uh, were not in the original report. Chambray first told me that I didn't know what I was talking about, because Mr. Chambray didn't know that I had a copy of this report. 
And then I told him that I had a copy of it and I'd read it many times. And at this point, Mr. Chambry changed his story. And he said, well, maybe he had left it out of the report, uh, that uh, he had written the report under trying circumstances. He'd been doing a number of other things, and he might have forgotten to put it in. And I told him I simply couldn't believe this. The next day I went, I thought, of, well, at least he would have, if Chambry were telling uh, a straightforward story, that he would have mention of the crime in his original notes. He might have left it out of the report, but he at least would have taken it down when he was talking to, to Russo because he took detailed notes. So I went back to Chambray, and I asked him, well, I said, where are your original notes? We can, we can settle this quickly. Mr. Chambray told me he had burned his notes. Chambray says Phelan's story is incomplete and distorted. To objectify the testimony of Perry Russo, whom Garrison described as a very stable young man, Russo was submitted to sodium pentothal, hypnotism, and on March 8th, six days before he testified to a lie detector test. NBC News has learned the following facts about this test. Russo's answers to a series of questions indicate, in the language of the polygraph operator, deception criteria. He was asked if he knew Clay Shaw. He was asked if he knew Lee Harvey Oswald. His yes answers to both of those questions indicated deception criteria. Rousseau's general reaction to this series of questions led the polygraph operator to suspect a psychopathic personality. At least one investigator and one assistant district attorney in Garrison's office were present. The list of questions was taken away from the polygraph operator, and he was told not to say anything. Despite the incomplete tests, the preliminary indications of deception criteria, six days later, Rousseau was put on the stand as the chief witness against Clay Shaw. The core of his testimony was his description of a party sometime in September 1963. He said Ferry, Oswald, and Shaw were there. Rousseau also said several of his friends were present in the early part of the evening. Sandra Moffat, Kenny Carter, Lefty Peterson. We talked with Lefty Peterson. And, uh, David Ferry. Yes, I did. And, and how did you meet Ferry? I met him at Ferry's house. Did you see David Ferry... Uh, uh, at any other time? Well, I've seen him twice. Since then, since then. I've seen him once on a Louisiana Parkway. I went, to, I went to his house with Perry and some other people. Uh, about four of us stopped in. We stayed for about 20, 25 minutes and left. All of you left? Uh, no, Perry stayed there, I think. He didn't, he didn't leave. Yeah. When was this? In September, 1963. Describe that occurrence. Was coming from a, some kind of sports event, football game, I think. You remember who played? No, sir. Was that a Tulane game or? Uh, yes, sir. Tulane, yes, sir. And now you're pretty sure it was a football game, no? Positive. But what made you think it was in September? Well, it was the first game of the season. Either yeah. the first or second game of the season, one of the two. Tulane played two home games that year. One October 4th, the other September 20th. Under hypnosis, Russo said the party took place September 16th. Under oath, he said the party took place sometime, he wasn't sure when, in mid-September. Kenny Carter remembers going to a game with Russo. He thinks it was the Miami game on October 4th. The date is crucial. Is it possible that Lee Harvey Oswald could have been present, wearing a beard and looking like a beatnik on those dates? If not, Garrison's hearing case collapses. Where was Lee Harvey Oswald on September 20th? 
you'll now hear from Ruth Payne first and uh, then Jesse Garner, who was the landlady for the Oswalds in New Orleans. Live in New Orleans. Do you remember, remember the date? Yes, I think I do. I think it was the 20th of September. That would be that was a Friday. And how long were you there? Over the weekend, left Monday. Where did you stay when you were in New At Orleans? their apartment. And can you tell me whether or not Lee was living at home all of the time? He was staying there evenings. Oh, yes, he was. Lee was there the um, entire time. In September of 1963, did you see him, Lee Harvey Oswald, often, or did you hear him in the house? Well, I used to hear him in the house all the time. I mean, him and his wife used to do a lot of arguing, and the baby would start crying. That's how I knew he was home. When would you say Lee Harvey Oswald left the apartment? Well, I know he left the same night that his wife left that day. Now, whether it was the 24th or the 25th, I don't remember exactly, but that same day his wife left, he left that night. Two witnesses say Lee Harvey Oswald could not have been living with David Ferry on September 20th, Oswald was living at home in New Orleans on September 20th. On October 4th, the date of the Miami-Tulane game, he was in Dallas. He registered with the YMCA. He called Ruth Payne on the telephone. At 2 in the afternoon, he was interviewed for a job by Ted Gangle of the Paget Printing Corporation. Could he have been Ferry's roommate at any time in September 1963? You arrived at the party at David Ferry's house. Who answered the door, do you remember? Oh, his roommate. Describe his height, his general build, and... He's about 6 or 6'1", six about 170 pounds, I would say. 165, 170 pounds. Was he quite a bit taller than you? Oh, yeah, he was taller than me, yeah. How tall are you? 5'9". So, how much taller than you would he have been? About 2 or 3 inches. Lee Harvey Oswald was exactly 5 feet 9 inches tall, exactly as tall as Lefty Peterson. Rousseau, in trying to identify the roommate with the beard, said, Peterson, quote, would know more about the roommate and be able to identify it. To you, I want to see if you think this fits the description of the man you saw in David Perry's apartment. Uh, I'm quoting Perry Rousseau. He said the roommate had sort of dirty blonde hair and a husky beard, which appeared to be a little darker than his hair. He said the guy was a typical beatnik. He said the roommate appeared to be in his middle 20s. Would that description fit the man that you saw that night? Just about, yes, sir. I'm going to read a description given by Harry Russo of a man that he saw in the apartment of David Ferry. He described this man as having a bushy beard, as being cruddy, very, very dirty. In your opinion, could that description have fit the Lee Harvey Oswald that you knew? I don't see how that could fit him because I've never seen him like that. Perry Russo has described David, David Ferry's roommate, whom he identified as a man he knew as Leon Oswald, as very, very dirty, a typical beatnik with a husky beard. Do you recall whether Lee Oswald was clean-shaven or had a beard? When I, when I came to New Orleans and about September 20th, he was clean-shaven then, and uh, I never saw Lee with a beard. I don't believe he had one my knowledge I think Marina would have mentioned it and he was also uh, neat when he dressed and uh, uh, clean it seemed to me I just feel that uh, Mr. Rosso must have seen someone else that he thinks was Lee Oswald you were in 1963 
from the period of at least September through November, closely associated with David Ferry? That's correct. You knew practically everyone who was associated with him at that time. Is that correct? That's correct. If someone lived in his house for more than two or three days during that period of time, in other words, might have been there long enough to be considered a roommate, would you have known about it? Yes, certainly. There has been testimony recently about a roommate of Ferry's who was unkempt or wore a beard. Do any of the people you know and who knew Ferry fit this description? James Llewellyn could possibly fit that description very well. Uh, I remember at that time Llewellyn did have some sort of beard, and uh, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call him unkempt, but uh, to some people this might uh, represent being unkempt. But uh, one of the things I've noticed, uh, <coughs> remembering Llewellyn, he bears uh, striking resemblance to... Uh, uh, this uh, mock picture of Oswald. Could he have been considered a roommate of Ferry's? Mm, yes, he could have, uh, possibly. Uh, I think uh, he and Ferry did room together sometime, maybe prior to that, maybe around that time. Did you know anyone at the time associated with Ferry by the name of Leon? Well, uh, uh, Jim Llewellyn's last name, uh, sometimes uh, people would address him as, Hey, Lou, uh, Lee, or something like that. The facts are these. Russo said Oswald, dirty and with a beard, was at the party that he was Ferry's roommate. He said the party took place in mid-September. He said Lefty Peterson was there. The two possible dates Peterson gives for the party, November 20th and October 4th, make it impossible for the man to have been Oswald. Russo speaks of the roommate's beard. People who knew Oswald say he never had a beard. Peterson says the roommate was at least two inches taller than he, but we know Oswald was Peterson's height. And we know that Russo denied knowing Oswald only three weeks before he testified. What about the other things Russo said? From Jim Garrison's case to, or for Jim Garrison's case to hold up, rather, Clay Shaw, using the name of Clay Bertrand, must be proved to have been at the party at David Ferry's apartment as Perry Russo testified. Now, Clay Shaw is not an easy man to forget. If Clay Shaw had been present in a room with Perry Russo, Lee Oswald, and David Ferry, it seems likely he would have been noticed. Did you notice a big man of any description, an older man there? No, sir. There was no one uh, over 40 or, uh, in, say, in his 40s or 50s, anything mm. like that? Just Ferry. Did you ever hear the name Clay? First name Clay? No, sir, no. Did you ever hear anybody uh, named, did you ever hear the name Bertrand Rock? Do you know? No, sir, no. Have you seen Clay Shaw's picture? Oh, yes, sir. Now, is the man you saw in that picture, uh, was he at that party that night? Well, Clay Shaw? Mm, I didn't see him. Have you ever been, were you at that time, or have you ever been in David Ferry's apartment? Never. You've heard of the name Clay Bertrand? I have do you know any such person? I do not. Uh, can you state whether or not you are Clay Bertrand? I am not Clay Bertrand. Uh, in 1963, did you ever have occasion to meet or know Lee Harvey Oswald? Never. Did you ever have occasion to meet or know David W. Ferry? I did not. Do you have any knowledge of a plot to assassinate President Kennedy? None whatsoever. 
Garrison has based his case on a certainty that he can prove Clay Shaw is Clay or Clem Bertrand. The name Clem Bertrand was first introduced by a lawyer named Dean Andrews, who told the Warren Commission a person by that name telephoned him suggesting he provide legal defense for Lee Oswald. Three years later, Garrison suggested to Andrews that Andrews identify Shaw as Bertrand. Andrews said he told Garrison he wouldn't say if Shaw was or was not Clay Bertrand. You say I identified him. I don't know if I did or I did not. Since then, Garrison has taken his former friend, Dean Andrews, before the grand jury where he's been indicted for perjury. Before that happened, Andrews talked with us. Man, I wouldn't know Clay Shaw if I fell across him on the street dead. Has the occasion arisen for you to take, to listen to, uh, to Clay Shaw? Oh, yes, since all this popped up, they had him on TV, so I just shut my eyes and listened to the voice, and that's not the voice. In other words, you're saying that Clay Bertrand is not Clay Shaw? I'm saying that the voice of Clay Shaw is not the voice that identifies Clay Bertrand. Right, and you have seen Clay Bertrand on two occasions? Two times. You've seen Clay Shaw's picture in the Since this happened many times. Okay. Can you say positively that the person you knew as Clay Bertrand is not the person you have seen as Clay Shaw? Scout's honor. He is not. Clay, or Clem Bertrand, does exist. An NBC News reporter has seen him. Clem Bertrand is not his real name. It's a pseudonym used by a homosexual in New Orleans. For his own protection, we will not disclose the real name of the man Andrews knew as Clem Bertrand. His real name has been given to the Department of Justice. He is not Clay Shaw. What then of Perry Russo's testimony? As you might expect, Walter Sheridan wouldn't just produce the show, but he would also have to find himself a role in the middle of it. And so here he is articulating what Perry Russo purportedly said to him about his Clay Shaw testimony. In my conversations with Perry Russo, he has stated that his testimony against Clay Shaw may be a combination of truth, fantasy, and lies. He said he wishes he had never gotten into this, but now he feels he has no choice but to go through with it. He said that he's afraid if he changed his testimony that Garrison might indict him for perjury. He said, suppose Clay Shaw is convicted and gets 20 years and goes through his appeals and he's sitting down there in prison. I might just call from wherever I am and say, bring your film crews down. I've got something to say. On one occasion, Russo said, the hell with truth the hell with justice. He said, you're asking me to sacrifice myself for Clay Shaw, and I won't do it. The JFK conspiracy of the case of Jim Garrison will continue after station identification. Abba Eben visits the Today Show tomorrow morning on... In New Ultra Bright Toothpaste, a taste you can really feel. New Ultra Bright gives your mouth... New Ultra Bright Toothpaste, the craziest taste, the freshest breath, the brightest teeth. Put them all together, they spell sex appeal. New Ultra Bright gives your mouth sex appeal. After Ultra Bright, everything else is just toothpaste.
just dumped the alcohol out of Halo. Yes, now alcohol's out. So can glycerin's in, in new Halo shampoo. New Halo now gives a soft shampoo. Let's your hair go silky. Yes, now alcohol's out. Silk and glycerin's in, in new Halo shampoo. Only recently has Jim Garrison revealed the extent of the plot that he says brought about the murder of John F. Kennedy. There was a plan uh, in operation in the city of New Orleans which had entirely different objectives than the killing of the president. That was the last thing in the minds of the people that caused this plan to begin. Lee Harvey, Harvey Oswald was a part, assigned a role essentially as decoy. Uh, I, I think I can tell you now... Uh, that uh, I know, but I mean, I feel like saying for the first time that uh, we've known for many months that Fair Play for Cuba, uh, which he pretended to be so interested in, was a cover for the operation. Oswald was not a communist. Oswald was not pro-Castro. And uh, as a result of the uh, operation, which was working here in the summer of 1963, a spinoff occurred, an Expected uh, change of direction occurred, which in the fall of 1963 resulted in that lethal apparatus being turned against President Kennedy. And that's uh, what happened, and that's the, the first time I've ever said it publicly. Can Jim Garrison prove his increasingly complicated and far-flung case until that case is brought to court before a jury, until the evidence is presented, no one can say. We're concerned here only with examining how Garrison has tried to put together that evidence. On May 12th, Garrison announced he had discovered a code, the same numbers and notebooks of Oswald and Shaw, which, decoded, was Jack Ruby's private telephone numbers. Now, this is the number in Oswald's notebook, and this is the number in Clay Shaw's notebook. A WDSU reporter asked Garrison to explain the code. Mr. Garrison, in Lee Harvey Oswald's diary, the Warren report says the number in there is DD19106. However, you say it's PO. How do you determine uh, that it's PO, sir? Well, it's just uh, more or less by looking at it. But Russian language experts looking at the page in Oswald's notebook said that what Garrison called an O was, in fact, a Russian D. And they owed them in Shaw's notebook. Garrison's office indicated was a CIA cover. But then a man named Odom called Garrison from Irving, Texas. He said that he had business dealings with Clay Shaw. He said that this was his post office box. He had rented it in 1966. He said that he had no connection with the CIA. Well, do you still think that uh, the number in Lee Harvey Oswald's notebook was, uh, was uh, Jack Ruby's phone number? If I thought it possible to communicate with you, I'd answer it, but I don't think there's any way. Well, Mr. Garrison, if the P.O. box didn't exist until late 65, how could it then be Jack Ruby's phone number? Well, that's a problem for you to think over because you obviously missed the point. Erwin Mann is a cryptographer, a professor of mathematics at New York University. You've examined the numbers found in the notebooks of Lee Oswald and Clay Shaw by Jim Garrison's office, have you not? Yes, I have. And you've seen the explanation given by Mr. Garrison that they are a code for Jack Ruby's private telephone number. Yes, I have. Based on your experience with codes and cryptography, how would you assess Mr. Garrison's explanation? I would say that it's just a guess, but um, 
but I, I really believe that uh, this is not an encipherment of that telephone number. Have you ever seen an encipherment like this before? No, I, I certainly have not. In particular, the reaching of the prefix WH from a, a prefix PO is not even unique. What do you mean by not even unique? I mean that, that the fact that the sum of the corresponding digits to the letters in the prefix uh, being 13 uh, does not uh, give uh, a does not give only one prefix uh, back when you go to decipher what you have previously enciphered. It could give any number then. It, it could, could give, out. in this case, I believe, six I such prefixes. I see. So it could be any one of six prefixes, and he has arbitrarily selected one which fitted into that. Uh, essentially, path. that is what he has done. In other words, if you have the answer to begin with, you can find a code which works. Uh, exactly. The people involved in this case are not, as Jim Garrison likes to point out, bank presidents or presidents of the Chamber of Commerce. Currently serving a term in the New Orleans Parish prison is John Kanzler, who was a burglar. The story he tells involves two of Jim Garrison's key staff members, Louis Ivon and Lynn Loisel. Mr. Ivan called me up and told me to meet Mr. Record. I mean, Mr. Lazell again. He said, "Why don't you take a ride with me?" Mr. Lazell, he was in a light gray, a light cream Falcon with an A on the back. You know, it wasn't like the regular detective cars. It was one of those compact cars. So uh, he said, "Do you think you can get?" in and out of a house without anybody knowing. I said, well, you know I can't. I said, why? He said, we might want you to do a job for us. So we proceeded downtown. We go to Dolphin Street. White House red door. He asked me, I think I can get in there. I said, well, when I was burglarizing, I said, uh, I didn't buy nothing. I said, uh, I could get in. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, I might want you to plant something in there, put something in there. I said, uh, well, listen, man, I said, uh, I said, you sure you're not setting me up to be getting in one of those windows and get my head blown off? So he said, no. I said, well, I don't want to go into nothing with my eyes, you know, closed. I said, what's this all about? He said, I can't tell you. I said, well, man, I said, well, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to be a part of it. I said, I think I have a right to know. So he said, well, this has something to do with uh, President Kennedy's assassination. I said, well, why would you want me to put something in there? I said, man, I said, I'm not going to do this. I don't want anything to do with this. I said, I don't want any part of it. Did he tell you whose house it was? No, 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 he didn't tell me whose house it was. Did you later find out? Sure I did. Whose house was it? Uh, Clay Shaw's. 
lawyer. Andrews knew Clay Burton. Lee Oswald was his client. Garrison was sure he could fill in the gaps in the case. Now, did you, did Mr. Garrison at one point ask you about certain operations across Lake Pontchartrain? Across the lake? Yes, I think we'll discuss that. Did he ask you if you knew any of the people involved? I think he did. What'd you tell him? Uh, Manny Garcia Gonzalez and Ricardo Davis. Did you know Mr. Gonzalez? No. Did you know Mr. Davis? No. Where did you get those names? Out the air. In other words, these names were fictional as far as you were concerned? Well, I'm trying to see if his cat's kosher, you know. So what? So he's kosher, I don't know, uh... So you just picked two names out of the air? Right. Now, why did you do that? Well, I don't know what he's up to. He's picking me like chicken, shucking me like corn, stewing me like an oyster. I mean, he ain't putting nothing down but air. So I give him two names, see which way he's going. In other words, you made up two names to see what he was going to do with them. Right. What did he do with them? Well, I don't know. Hadn't done anything yet. Well, have you had any occasion to have him talk to you about either of those names since then? Ah, uh, about two weeks ago, on a Saturday, are we talking, and he picks up uh, a weapon with an item number on it. What kind of a weapon? Pistol. Semi-automatic. Black. Probably 7.6 millimeter. I didn't examine it. And he says that Manny Garcia Gonzalez in Miami or someplace down there got busted for carrying a concealed weapon. And I told him, Manny Garcia... Gonzalez was never busted in his life. I didn't believe it. He put the weapon back down. We talked some more. And that was it. I left. Did he tell you this was a gun taken from this man? From Emmanuel Garcia Gonzalez. When now, I don't know if the Manuel Garcia Gonzalez he's talking about is for real. If the Manny Garcia Gonzalez is the name that I pulled out of the air. This I cannot say. What was your what was your conclusion from that conversation? Well, if it's the Manuel Garcia Gonzalez that I told him, he's got the right ta-ta, but the wrong ho-ho. We know that Manuel Garcia Gonzalez has not been questioned, but many others have. And many have told us that they've been subjected to pressure to give testimony that would build the case against Clay Shaw. Most would not risk saying so publicly. You're going to hear from some who would. None of them has been paid or received any compensation for us for what he's doing. I believe the next person you'll hear from is Sandra Moffat, who was a friend of Perry Russo and who attended at least one of the get-togethers at Ferry's apartment. Did anyone from Mr. Garrison's office contact you uh, before this uh, warrant was sworn out yesterday? Yes. Yeah. What did they ask you? They wanted me to go down to New Orleans to look at some pictures. Did they uh, try and persuade you in any way? Did they offer you anything? Uh, yes. What did they Clothing. Have? Clothing? Yes. And that they offered me best rooms down there and just everything. Are you afraid to go back to New Orleans? In a sense. Why are because you? Because it's my record down there. Be afraid of anything else now. 
Uh, you mean you're afraid that they will bring out something from your past? Try to. A few months back, they uh, called me out to the control center in Angola, and uh, there was two district attorney investigators who came to me with some uh, pictures and a briefcase. Who were they? Uh, one of them was Lynn Loisel, and I forgot the other one's name. They, uh, Louis Ivan? Yes, sir, I believe that's the name. Well, uh, Mr. Loisel, uh, the way he opened up the conversation, uh, he asked me what was the thing that I wanted the most. I told him, needless to say, my freedom. So he said I could either be cut loose right away or I could be made to uh, serve this whole 90-year sentence. The way he said it, the district attorney, Mr. Garrison, could cut me loose completely. He would say he was a very powerful man and uh, that he could hurt many people or he could also help them, all depending on how they cooperated with him. Now, what happened to you after you came back here to the parish prison? Well, he started asking me, uh, uh, you see, I live at the 1300 block of Charters way back when I first come to the States. And then uh, I live in 900 block of Esplanade, which puts me in a good position around Mr. Clay's house. And uh, he wanted me to say that uh, I have been approached by Mr. Shaw on a couple of occasions, see, and I refused to say that. I told him, no, I can't say that. Approached in what way? Uh, homosexual approach. And he wanted me to say that uh, Mr. Clay Shaw was claimed by a train. Had you ever been approached by anyone meeting that description at all? No, sir. Uh, I have never been approached by anyone like that. When he was told what Tories and John Kanzler had said, Jim Garrison answered, I wouldn't dignify those people with an answer. Alvin Bobuff was brought to Washington by us to submit to a lie detector test. We paid for the test, for his expenses, and for his lawyers. We paid nothing more. Did you actually believe Lynn Loisel attempted to bribe you to give him false information concerning President Kennedy's assassination? Yes. Al, I have before me here what is purported to be the transcript of the conversation that was recorded there uh, between your attorney, yourself, and Lynn Loisel. Now, are you prepared to say that basically it's a correct transcription of the record of the conversation that took place? Nothing's been cut. It's accurate to every detail. I'm going to read a couple of phrases from it, and I'd like to ask you some questions about it. This is Lynn Lazell speaking. And I said, the boss is in a position, he's speaking to your attorney, the boss is in a position to put him in a job, you know, possibly of his choosing, of Al's choosing. Also, that they would be, we would make a hero out of him instead of a villain, you understand. Everything would be to your satisfaction. We can change the story around, you know, enough to positively, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know, eliminate him into any type of conspiracy or what have you. Later on, he says... And I quote again, I would venture to say, well, I'm, you know, fairly certain we could put $3,000, he snaps his fingers, just like that, you know. I'm sure we'd help him financially. I'm sure we, real quick, we could get him a job. Now, is that basically the substance of, of the offer that was made in front of your attorney at that point? That's correct. Himself? Do you believe he was acting with Garrison's uh, yes, my attorney asked him, "Did uh, was Jim Garrison aware of his presence and what he was going to say? And he said yes. 
after the district attorney's office, the New Orleans district attorney's office, found out about this tape recording that had been made, what happened? They've got some pictures uh, of me uh, that they said they'd hold over my head if I uh, came out with this. They threatened to give these pictures out like they were going out of style if I come out in the open and said they need uh, charges of bribery. The deputy New Orleans police superintendent cleared Loisel and Ivan of Bobuff's charges. He said money had been offered to Bobuff, but that the offer did not violate the police code of conduct because historically police have paid informers. He said that he could find no evidence that Bobuff had been threatened. Now this is Fred Lehman's. He ran a Turkish bath on Canal Street in New Orleans. Recently had contact with the district attorney's office in New Orleans. Yes. Could you tell me about that? Well, I received a call at my place. I'm now in business in Slidell by a man that identified himself as a Mr. Robert E. Lee with the district attorney's office in New Orleans. He said he would like to talk to me, but not on the phone, and wanted to know when it would be convenient for me to come in to the office. He said, did I know Clay Shaw? And I said, well, I knew him. Uh, he said, did he used to come up to your place? And I said, well, uh, some of the times, yes. And he said, did he use the name of Clay Bertram? And I told him, well, I couldn't be sure that he'd ever used that name because I didn't remember names too good or dates. And he said, well, it would be very helpful to them if I could remember any of that. And I said, well, I don't want to get involved in anything like this. I said, I'm trying to get a lease on a building in New Orleans now, if I can raise the money for it, that I think would make a fine uh, nightclub and a private club. And he said, well, I'm sure that if you help us, that we can help you and you will get the place that you want. So then he asked me questions about, uh, couldn't I remember that Clay Shaw had used the name Clay Bertram? when he came to the pass. And uh, the way he asked it, I figured he wanted a yes, so I told him yes. And uh, asked me, uh, was there any uh, other people that uh, Clay Shaw, or they kept saying Clay Bertrand, had come up with? And I said, there's one young fellow. And he said, well, would his name have been Lee. And uh, Mr. Lee said that would be very helpful too. So I said, yes, there's one man that uh, he called Lee. So uh, he said, well, wait here. He said, uh, Mr. Garrison should be in on the rest of this. So he brought Mr. Garrison in and introduced him to me. And uh, he asked, wouldn't this young fellow, he says, couldn't you remember that he had a goatee or a little beer beatnik type a beard yes uh -huh. and uh, I said yes I can remember that and uh, then I told Mr. Garrison right out uh, what my plans were in trying to raise money for this club what would be a private club here in New Orleans and he said well he was sure that uh, I would get it and that in any way at all that he could help me he would the people that helped him he took care of them was there any amount of money Mentioned. Yes, I told him that I needed $2,500. What did he say about that? Uh, he said he was sure that I wouldn't have any trouble getting that money. What happened after that? 
Then Mr. Garrison said, well, we want to get all this down in a statement. Uh, he said, I'll send the stenographer in. Mr. Lee and I sat down to make the statement. Well, I couldn't remember everything as we started the statement, so Mr. Lee would ask me questions. His questions would be, uh, for instance, if I didn't uh, remember too good, he, he would say, well, wouldn't he have been doing this or that? The uh, statement was then typed up, is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And you signed it? I signed it, but I did not have it... Uh, sworn to. Mm -hmm. Who was there when you signed it? Uh, I believe Mr. Ward was, Mr. Lee, and the stenographer. What happened there? The last time was, I was down there, Mr. Lee told me, he said, well, uh, Fred, he said, I'm sure Mr. Gerson's going to do something for you because he always helps people that help him, but he said, anything that has to do with money matters, him giving you any money, cannot be done in front of anybody else because that wouldn't look good. He said, so you're going to have to just talk to him person to person because that way why there are no witnesses to it, whatever deal you two make. So I went on back to Slidell and I did not call Mr. Ivan. And I got to thinking about this pretty bad and it just struck me that uh, what they were wanting me to do, the more I thought about it, I figured, well, it wouldn't be right to swear somebody's life away or ruin the rest of their life on false testimony, no matter what was offered. Now, when you say it wasn't true, let's go back. Did you ever know Clay Shaw as Clay Burton? No. When you told them that a young man named Lee came up there with Clay Shaw, that was not true? No, it wasn't. And they knew it wasn't true? Well, I would figure that, too, because uh, Mr. Lee previously had asked me, didn't I remember these different things, and it would be helpful if I remembered them. But in spite of that, you did put all these things in the statement because you thought that's what they wanted in the statement, and you thought you might be able to help yourself by doing it. Yes. Uh -huh. You might say that all of the pertinent answers you gave them were answers that they suggested to you with leading questions. Yes, definitely. Because otherwise, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what information they wanted. And they told you this statement that you signed is now in Mr. Garrison's private safe? Yes. Are you giving this statement to us freely and voluntarily? Freely and voluntarily. In fact, uh, I have hinted to you and... Uh, that I could use some help, but you've told me, frankly, there's no way, shape, or form that you can give me any monetary assistance. Uh, are you willing that we show this on television? Yeah. If it'll help to correct maybe the wrong that I've done, Mr. Shaw, in giving that statement and signing it to Mr. Garrison, why, go ahead. Yesterday, Fred Lehman's mailed a letter to Jim Garrison. In it, Lehman said that the statement he had signed concerning Clay Shaw was not true. Now, we cannot say that the murder of John F. Kennedy did not happen the way Jim Garrison says it did. We cannot say he does not have the evidence to prove it. We can say this. The case he has built against Clay Shaw is based on testimony that did not pass a lie detector test that Garrison ordered, and Garrison knew it. One prospective witness admitted in advance he was going to lie. Members of Garrison's staff, in trying to strengthen the case against Shaw, have threatened and offered inducements to potential witnesses. The results of his four months of public investigation have been to damage reputations, to spread fear and suspicion, and worst of all, to exploit the nation's sorrow and doubts about President Kennedy's death. 
Jim Garrison has said, let justice be done. Though the heavens fall, we seek the truth. So do we. Good night. The film testimony you've seen was edited. The unedited film is available to any authorized investigator with a legitimate reason to see it. This program was produced by NBC News, which is solely responsible for its content. Thank you for listening to episode 164 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.